Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Our guest today is Surus Shayer. He is Associate Professor of International History at the Graduate Institute of the University of Geneva. He previously taught at Princeton University and the American University of Beirut. He's published various articles and two books, Who is Knowledgeable is Strong, Science, Class, and the Formation of Modern Iranian Society, 1900 to 19, uh, 1950, and The Middle East and the Making of the Modern World. And he's co-edited two volumes, The Rutledge Handbook of the History of the Middle East Mandates, and a Global Middle East, Mobility, Materiality, and Culture in the Modern Age. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, Suris. Thank you very much, Nadira, and great talking to you. So we always start with a bit of a, like a biographical question, sort of what's your intellectual biography? How did you come to the study of the Middle East? Okay, Um, I grew up in Switzerland to a Swiss mother and an Iranian father. And I think right there you have a big part of your answer. Um, It sort of was important to me growing up, particularly when I became a teen, to sort of understand where I come from. So very sort of, I think, typical teeny stuff, I'd say. Um, And from there, I really pretty quickly, when I was 15, 16, um, sort of launched myself into... Yeah, Middle Eastern studies specifically and sort of history more generally. Um, I did my studies in different places. I was in Israel and Palestine. I um, then later on went to Geneva where I did an MA and a PhD in the USA and thereafter decided to not only sort of do a little bit more research on Iran but to actually live there for a longer period of time. And as I think you noted yourself, um, uh, then worked at AUB as well. That was from 2005 to 2008. So that's sort of my trajectory. Um, I think if the Middle East wouldn't have been as interesting as I think it is, I may have sort of shifted at a certain point in time. But uh, the longer I was in it, uh, you know, I guess as, as, as everybody else who is studying the region, 
the more I was simply fascinated by it, by its history, by the many facets of its uh, present. And so here I am, um, having just finished the book and uh, talking to you. I think that sort of um, wraps up a bit what the intellectual trajectory is. What about the book itself? Today we're discussing your latest book, which just came out from Harvard University Press, The Middle East and the Making of the Modern World. Sort of what was the genesis of that book? Sort of what was the seed and the kernel of the idea? And how did it morph into a book over the course of many years? Um, it actually took a long time to think about and write this book. Uh, I would say a decade. I first released maybe even a little bit more, 11 years, 12, I'd say. I really first started when I worked at AUB, the American, Ameri American University of Beirut. Um, and I think at that point in time, what fascinated me most and quite specifically was the question of uh, transborder movements. Um, I did a lot of interviews in South Lebanon, and then a little bit later from 2008 or nine onwards, perhaps. Um, also uh, being helped by great people in Palestine and Israel itself. Um, uh, Yusri Chaisran, for instance, helped me a great deal. Um, did interviews also on the North and Israeli side. Um, I think the fact that I had studied in Israel-Palestine sort of helped because living in Beirut uh, and sort of knowing the other side sort of showed me that there are important parallels and also cross connections that some other people perhaps not, wouldn't have seen maybe quite this way. Um, so it sort of started to maybe reformulate it as a way of making sense historically of my AUB and Lebanese experience through the eyes and the heart of what I had experienced before and the other way around. Uh, but that really was only the first version of it all. I think it, the book made at least two big changes thereafter. I sort of, or to put it differently, I think twice took a big step back from what had started as something that was very sort of geographically specific, sort of border related. Um, uh, and it was really in Princeton, when I came to Princeton 2008, 2009, uh, 2008 actually, and that those sort of two big step back, steps back um, happened. And it was at that point in time that I started to think very seriously um, about the question how I can use, how we as historians can use the history of the Middle East generally to think about much larger questions, broader questions. Uh, in my case, the question how we can think about the social-spatial making of uh, the modern world in general and not only of the Middle East. Um, so it sort of, yeah, it took a number of um, steps, I guess, to get to the point where the book now is. Well, one thing I really love about this book is that it just read as very different from anything else I read because sort of the nature of the field is that you read national histories. It's sort of XX topic in Palestine, XX topic in Lebanon, or um, sometimes even more narrow than that, Beirut or Cairo or the Ottoman Empire. And what this book does is you sort of dispel with this idea of national, strictly national histories, 
And you deal with all these different types of geographies that we might not necessarily think of when we think of the Middle East or even the Middle East in professional historical studies. So um, the way you link cities together um, and then deal with the transition from the Ottoman Empire to national states during the mandate period. And then also you have all these global circuits. So one sort of concept that you use to ground this all is called transpatialization. And I think you easily could have named the book this. Can you define what transpatialization is for us? Yes. Um, this, you're totally right, is the core conceptual message of this book. And I, for that reason, mention it the very first time already on page two. And I think you are also right that the book could have been called that. Uh, just maybe at that, maybe as, you know, some of my addresses pointed out to me, it's, it's a, in actual fact, I was thinking about that. I was, you know, seriously considering that. But uh, I think correctly, the people at Harvard University Press strongly uh, recommended against that because they said it would be too long of a word, too sort of academies of a word. Um, so, having said that, what is it? Um, to give you an answer, I think um, it makes sense to first very quickly take a step back and to explain what I consider to be sort of the central most problem with more specific, or not more specific, but more unidimensional ways of understanding how the modern world has been created socio-spatially. Um, now, there are sort of big schools out there in the field of history. Um, there are global historians since the 19th century. We had nation-state historians. We have historians of urbanization. And all of them, um, I'd say, sort of make a very correct claim that globalization or the formation of nation-states or the incredible and unprecedented growth of cities um, is central most to the way in which the modern world has been formed and has really sort of characterized the formation of the modern world. And that makes sense in some ways. There is absolutely no question that these three, that these three processes have been really, really important. But the fact of the matter is, as a lot of really cutting-edge historians, not only now, but, you know, since decades have actually understood, there is no, ultimately, there is no way, there is no method to clearly distinguish between, and that also means to clearly isolate and delimit what is global from what is urban, from what is the nation-state. There are all sorts of different reasons for this, but conceptually speaking, this means if we take this understanding to the sort of very end, this means that ultimately it is neither the global or globalization or the nation state or the national or the city or the urban, which is the central most characteristic, I think, of the formation of the modern world, rather it is transpatialization. And so now I get to this question, okay, so what is transpatialization? And it is, and maybe it is best if I very quickly open my book here, uh, because that will make it also simple for me. 
It is the fact that cities, regions, states, and global circuits reconstituted and transformed each other much more thoroughly and at a much faster rhythm and pace than at any other point in history. That is, it is an overall transformative process, um, not one that focuses ultimately on the global or the city or anything else, but rather a process central most to which is the very transformation the mutual reciprocal transformation that takes place as cities, regions, states, both nation states and empire states, and global circuits enter into the modern world. And that in turn means that what is central most to a study that can call itself a study of transnationalization is not this city or that, or the development of this urban issue or that, or the study of this global network or another. Rather, what is central most is an examination of particular reciprocal transformations. Sometimes that's simply a, an urban and a national sort of dimensions that mutually, literally transform each other. So, in other words, sometimes it's two different socio-spatial fields, as I like to call them. But sometimes it's all four of them that mutually transform each other. So the very subject matter of transnationalization is those processes of reciprocal and sometimes mutual transformation rather than this or that particular socio-spatial field. Yeah? Um, yeah, back to you. Well, to write this sort of history, it's, it's interesting. You sort of can't... You go through the book, and I sort of thought, well, there are moments here that read very much like intellectual history. There are moments here that read very much like social history. Um, and even your urban history isn't sort of what I was taught to think of as urban history. So can you put this book in this specific genre of history, or do you sort of want to push back against that sort of um, that sort of uh, setting of categories of history? Um, I think what the book, I can tell you what the book tries to do. Whether it does that successfully, of course, you know, remains, you know, if that's, that's for the readers to judge. But what I try to do, and that's uh, also something that sort of I, you know, lay out in, in the introduction, is to talk at one and the same time to a multitude of different historical specialists, right? So... Once I have laid out in introduction the conceptual consequences of what I'm trying to do here, I try to show why that matters and how it is also built on and how it maybe can contribute to not only one specific genre of history, let's say nation state, but rather that as well as urban history, as well as the history of regions and global history. And I also you know, very importantly, try to connect what I'm trying to do here to transnational history, to what transnational historians do, right? So again, precisely because transspecialization is not a process that is ultimately reducible to or that is ultimately focused on one very specific spatial field, let's say the city or let's say a global network, but rather tries to understand how different fields literally 
remake and reconstitute and retransform each other in the modern world. Precisely for that reason, the different sub-disciplines of history that this book addresses is not only one. It's not only, let's say, the history of cities, but by necessity, it is cities' history, it is the history of nation-states, the history of global networks, and the history of regions. And connected to that, the larger question of what transnational history is or maybe also can be. So as much as you don't delineate, um, rightfully so, I think what genre of history belongs to you, you do have a very specific category of the Middle East and a vision of what the Middle East is for the purposes of your book. And on the cover, you have a map, including sort of what we call in English the Levant, or what you refer to, of course, in the book as the Arabic, Bilad al-Sham, so modern-day Jordan, Syria, Palestine, Israel, and Lebanon. Um, so some might say that you're very narrowly defining what the Middle East is. I mean, the Middle East in our modern uh, contemporary conceptualization of it it includes Egypt, for example. It could include Iraq um, and the Arab Gulf. Why is the Middle East so narrowly defined in the book? Or would you say that it wasn't narrowly defined? Is this for the purposes of um, making your points about transspatialization? Um, I would agree with what you said at the very end. And let me expound. Um, there is, indeed, what I call in the book a pivot, a spatial pivot to this book. And that spatial pivot is, you are right, Bilad Hashem, the Levant, uh, Greater Syria, as it sometimes is called in the 20th century. Um, but the fact of the matter is that that pivot doesn't equal a black box within which I operate. Rather, what interests me is certainly on the one side how certain key issues of transnationalization take place and unfold within that sort of pivot. But that includes inherently um, Egypt, a little bit the Arabian Peninsula, though really sort of on the side, but certainly Turkey and Iraq, really sort of on the side, in this case Iran, and the Ottoman Empire. North Africa is sort of further away, I have to admit. Now, that means that um, the Middle East, if defined as, let's say, if we would define a history of the Middle East as a history where every single area or country gets the exactly same amount of attention, then yes, absolutely, this isn't a history of the Middle East. There's no question about it. Um, but... On the other hand, this also isn't a history simply of one region defined in a reified sort of existential absolute way. Rather, what I'm also, and just sort of add to this sort of element here, what I also try to show is how the very notion of what Bilad Hashem is, how it functions and operates as a region, and that actually includes its relationships and ties to neighboring sort of areas in the Middle East, as well as to other parts of the globe, be that diasporas or be that global and sort of trans-imperial networks. That very bit sort of belongs to that answer too, right? Um, yeah, back to you. 
Well, so one thing I really like about the book is that you sort of have these recurring friends, so to speak, in the form of cities, because you are so focused. I mean, you include urbanization as sort of one of these processes um, that inform transpatialization. So can you sort of lay out just for our listeners what your, you call it your urban patchwork um, for certain periods of time, because the book is divided into different time periods. And we'll get more into the structure of the book later. Can you sort of lay out who our, our recurring stars are? Because I think we, we all have a sense of sort of what the important cities in the Levant were in the late 19th and early 20th century. But I think you sort of muddle that a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there indeed are, there are certain, there are certainly certain cities that for all matters and purposes, I think it's fair to say gain more than they lose in the process um, of sort of moving into the 19th century and then into the 20th century. I think the greatest winner on some level, and that doesn't mean that every single inhabitant of that city is happy and well off. And that's a very important sort of thing to keep in mind. But I think all in all, the greatest winner is Beirut. Now, the question is why that is the case. And of course, people have thought about this issue before. Uh, and I sort of build on, I should you know, very clearly say this, I build on, on, on a lot of you know, historians' work as I'm sort of trying to find my way through the empirical material that I have and sort of think about it. I think that the key reason um, why Beirut becomes such a center, not really a dominant, all-powerful, hegemonic center, but certainly the gravitational point of Biladasham from the mid-19th century onward, the reason is that their imperial, local, and global economic interests merge. They don't necessarily do so without tensions, but they merge enough and with releasing enough energy for Beirut to really become the gravitation point of that region. You have a very similar process, although at a lower level of energy, I'd say, that starts to happen with Haifa from the very late 19th century, early 20th century onward, which is why by certainly the 1930s, and into the 1940s, Haifa starts to be seen by people in Beirut as the immediate competitor and actually quite a great threat. But also there, again, the reason is not simply because Haifa as a city, not simply because the urban in Haifa, in one way or another, develops in a way that is quite specific or distinct. Rather, what's happening there is that certain urban, imperial, first Ottoman and then imperial British, as well as nation-state developments merge and mutually transform each other in such a way that Haifa as a place becomes quite extraordinary. Right. So um, these two cities actually are, to my mind, really great examples why we can't simply think, (coughs) excuse me, why we can't simply think of the urban in separation from the national, in separation from the global, but why it is actually interesting to study, to turn the intertwinement of these different dimensions into the very subject matter of what we study.
what I also really like about the book is you, in many places, you pair up cities um, and you get a sense of these strong linkages between the cities, both in terms of ideas flowing between them, but also economics. And that's something I wanted to bring up because I think that something this book does really well is, as we mentioned, it sort of defies genre, but it really fills this space just empirically in terms of what our knowledge is of economic interactions between cities. Can you give us a really good example of that? Perhaps um, not Beirut. Yeah, let me start, or let me, uh, well, as you tell me, not Beirut, um, let me uh, use the, uh, the sort of the uh, example of, uh, the, uh, of the Jaffa-Jerusalem axis, um, which really starts sort of in the mid-90s, later 19th century. Um, taking a step back, I would say that one of the few really crucial developments in the 19th century, indeed is in this region, um, is the fact that certain twin interurban ties become considerably stronger than they have been before. And quite often, though not always, those twins um, include one coastal and one hinterland city. So this is why we have Jaffa, Jerusalem here. Um, a parallel case, and actually the most powerful one, certainly, is Beirut, Damascus, right? And I may use this sort of question that you just asked now to also point out the fact that the uh, Zionist Yishuv from the late 19th century onwards, uh, but also after the First World War, that is, after the, you know, uh, after the end of the Ottoman Empire and the start of Mandate Palestine, really needs to be seen as an integral part of the developments that I point out here, uh, both objectively speaking, but even subjectively, that is, in the minds of not maybe all, but certainly quite a lot of um, the Jews who were living in the Yeshuv at that point in time. That is, we can't really understand the Yeshuv um, without trying to understand how certain developments in it are actually parallels to developments that happen in Bin Laden as a whole, and sometimes are even linked to certain developments that happen <coughs> in Baladashem as a whole. But the other thing I think is true too, by the way, I think in order to truly understand what happens in greater Syria and even more broadly in the Middle East, certainly from the early 20th century onward, we cannot totally do without the issue. Yeah? That's, that's sort of, a, I would say, a secondary message that the book, both empirically but also conceptually, is trying to put forward. Now, that's something you're very, very careful to do. Each chapter, because like I said, it sort of proceeds chronologically in time forward, has a check-in with the issue, so to speak, where you integrate different themes that you touched upon early in a chapter with specific reference to the issue, um, the Jewish population in Palestine. Um, so again, this is sort of one of those marginal communities that is left out of these narratives, these historiographical narratives about what the shaping of the Middle East is. But another sort of area that perhaps doesn't get as much attention, and this is something you don't spend much time on because your work focuses on urbanization um, as one of these elements of transpatialization, what's going on in the rural areas? And do you find that as useful to understanding the shaping of the modern Middle East? 
Um, absolutely, yes. And, you know, as I pointed out in a very short one page long bit of the introduction, <clears throat> I could have chosen different scaffoldings, as it were, for this book. And I made certain choices that did mean that some bits, some maybe we should rather say not empirical bits, but certain aspects and viewpoints um, get much more coverage than others. And there is no question that um, peasants as actors and rural areas as simply zones get less coverage here and are not a viewpoint, a conceptual analytical viewpoint of this book. So that's one side of the coin, what I just said right now. But there is another side, and that is um, two things. Firstly, precisely because I, well, I guess sort of felt slightly bad about the fact that the rural is just not getting as much coverage here. Precisely for that fact, but also because I really found it really fascinating. Um, I integrated into the book from chapter one, uh, mostly a little bit in chapter one, but then mostly in chapter three and chapter four, um, a section of what I call the central periphery. Right, and The central periphery is basically this pretty large, well, by Middle Eastern sort of standards, um, a pretty large um, area constituted by what is nowadays northern Israel, southern Lebanon, uh, the Jaulan, uh, and northwestern Jordan, right? That is a sort of a rural, partly tribal or at least semi-tribal area that um, was never fully under the control of one city. Uh, for a variety of different reasons. In other words, there were sort of larger cities sort of around that area that from the 1850s, 60s um, had a certain interest in that area. There were some merchants from Saida, from Beirut, some uh, from Nablus who started to buy up a bunch of properties there. Uh, but there were also a number of sort of smaller towns, Marjayun uh, being one, Binjbeil being another, Sfat being yet another. And sort of very important sort of smaller second or third tier mercantile and also administrative actually centers. And what's really interesting about this area is that after <clears throat> 1918, 1920, and the division, the sort of the, uh, the quartering of Bilad into four different countries, um, this region becomes both central to Bilad or remains central because it's really at the very Geographically, it's in the very center um, of Bilad Hashem. And at the same point in time, it's a rural geographical periphery in and to each of the four new countries created after World War I. Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Jordan. Right? And that double sort of, that, that, that sort of um, situation, that contrast slash contradiction central on the one side, peripheral on the other side, I found truly fascinating. Um, and uh, it is for that reason that I sort of inserted that particular rural area into the book. 
But again, um, the rule as a analytical viewpoint onto the development of what happened, that I don't quite do. I don't think things will be entirely different. <coughs> but there is no question that... Um, there is no question that uh, this isn't a book where peasants and rural issues are center stage. Absolutely. So one thing I also really enjoyed about the book is, and I think this really sort of again plays with the idea of what our, our notion of modern is, because often our notion of modern corresponds to the beginning of the nation state, right? Or, yeah, the nation state or the coming of colonialism in certain areas. Um, is you cover both the late Ottoman period, so like roughly the late 1800s to um, through to the early 1920s, um, and you cover the beginning of the national period with that as well. That's sort of the second half of the story. How does this urban patchwork transition from um, the Ottoman period, what you term the Ottoman twilight in the 1920s, and then sort of the coming of the nation state in the modern Middle East, or in Biladishan specifically? Um, the urban patchwork you are referring to is my name for what I consider to be one of the central most characteristics of Bilal Desham in the 19th century and into the 1930s. That is, we can think of and talk about Bilal Desham in all sorts of different ways, but one and perhaps the central most, certainly socio-spatially, the central most trait was the fact that it was a patchwork of different cities. That means that a number of cities matter, Damascus, Aleppo, Jerusalem, Jaffa, Beirut. There is one city, Beirut, as we noted before, that sort of becomes a gravitation point, but it is not so strong that it eclipses, outshines, dominates, exerts hegemony even over all the others. Uh, and as part of that patchwork are also those sort of dual interurban relations that become stronger in the 19th century. Before we had mentioned Jerusalem Yaffa, Damascus Beirut is two of them. Now what happens after the Ottoman Empire falls and four new nation states embryonic nation-states are formed, is that these cities and the interurban relations between them continue to matter. They matter economically, culturally, politically, certainly socially in terms of the societal interactions between the people in them. And that in turn means that these new nation-states cannot be understood in isolation from that fact. That is, the key socio-spatial developments in the late Ottoman Bilad Hashem, from my point of view, that is the fact that these cities continue to be really central to the life of their inhabitants, although they are tremendously transformed, firstly. Secondly, the fact that we have these interurban relations. And thirdly, the fact that the region as a whole is much more integrated by 1918 than it ever was before. These three facts, an urban, an interurban, and a regional fact, as it were, continues to deeply structure and form the new nation states that are formed after 1918 and the French and in British imperial rulers of those nation states. But in turn, 
those sort of urban, interurban, and regional dimensions are transformed and reshaped in turn by those new nation states, right? So it's like we have two maps in a certain way, if you want to think about it abstractly, that basically form and transform each other. Now, what happens with this patchwork, with this urban patchwork, to get back to your, fully to your question, right? Um, the patchwork as a whole con continues to exist, but I do believe that by the 1930s, it ceases to be the most salient um, characteristic of Biladasham as a region. By the 1930s, what becomes perhaps principal to Biladasham, to its functioning as a region, is not anymore the fact that it is a patchwork of cities, but rather that it is the umbrella for four new nation states. And it is that new functioning of Biladasham that really becomes central. That doesn't mean that the city ceases to be important, but I do think that there is a certain shift in, in balance and in importance. Yeah? We can talk, if we want, later on about what that shift means and what an umbrella for nation states as a description of how a region functions, what that means, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So back to you here. Well, I kind of wanted to switch gears for a second because one thing we haven't talked about is the intellectual component. Um, and you do know I love intellectual history. So something that, <laughs> yeah, something that informed, the, the part of the book I was most excited to see was your treatment of this idea of Arabism because I think that that, it's, there was an article, I think, published in the 90s where the history of Arab nationalism and the many different definitions of what nationalism means and Arabism and pan-Arabism, it was dissected by um, Rashid Haradi, who's at Columbia, and he sort of gets, he one of the lines that sticks out to me is he says, well, you know, no one's really written a good study of what Arabism looked like in the late 1800s, like what did Arab identity look like? And you start to scratch the surface here. Um in your earlier chapters. And I wanted sort of, if you could tell us a bit more about that and then detail how that develops into the nation state period, bringing us back to this like Ottoman twilight, but also the post-Ottoman twilight period and how that also informs the formation of cities, if it does at all, or is it vice versa? Yeah. Let me start by saying that, um, as I'm sure you, you know, saw reading the book, this is not an intellectual history and I would never yeah. dare claiming that it is one. Right, I simply don't know those sources well enough uh, to, you know, say that will be that. And I also don't, um, well, have the training that would sort of come with writing an intellectual history. Yes, but if I can interrupt for, for one second, you recognize in the book, I think very organically, that you can't make a lot of these arguments without thinking about how people thought of themselves. So I think that... That's I mean, very true. Yeah, so back to you. That's very true. And that's where, where I would now sort of continue by saying this being said, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I would sort of add the following. Um, where ideas matter to me or ideas matter to this book in as far as the cultural self-understanding of spaces or rather people's understanding of the spaces within they live. That is what matters to me when it comes to political ideas, right? Um, and now, the, 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 it needs to be very clear that, of course, political ideas um, 
there are many more political ideas than simply those that have to do with one's spatially, let's say, oriented understanding of where one is in life and where one is in the world, right? There are questions of ethnicity, questions of religion that sort of play into this, and I don't really touch on them, right? So I, in other words, focus on a quite specific slice of political self-understanding and political ideas, right? So now, why, however, is that particular slice important to me? Well, it is important to me because without really understanding how people culturally understand their own space and the, to use a different word, how they understand the place they have in the world, we can't truly write a fully formed and a comprehensive socio-spatial history like this book sort of tries to do, right? And so, so specifically and empirically, what I'm trying to do then is to see how people think about in changing ways what cities are in a globalizing, newly imperial and regionally integrated world that is. How do people um, culturally make sense of the very fact that when they are in a city, it is not simply the city that matters to them, but rather it is the fact that modern Middle Eastern cities like Jerusalem, for instance, um, are transformed and transform imperial structures, the Ottomans, the British later, French later, global networks, as well as the regional context in which they are, right? So these questions are really quite important sort of to a socio-spatial exploration like this book is. The same goes with the region as a whole. How did people's understanding, cultural understanding and self-understanding of what that region of Bilatjem is actually change? Um, where there are certain basic problems and contrasts and contradictions in the way in which they thought about it. And as a matter of fact, as we can see, there were, to give you one very good example, by the late 19th century, there is a certain trend towards quasi-nationalizing what Bilad Hashem means, right? And all sorts of different people do this in, in sort of comparable ways. But as, very interestingly, they do do so, they also sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly globalize Bilad Hashem. That is, they say that Bilad Hashem's nationalization, the fact that they now can think of Bilad Hashem as a quasi-national space, certainly still within the Ottoman Empire, but still as a sort of a quasi-national space, means that it is comparable to, and therefore quite equal as, spaces like, they say, Switzerland, or Britain, or Russia. In other words, nationalization and globalization go hand in hand when we try to think, in this particular example, how people's understanding of Bilad Hashem as a cultural space sort of changes in the later 19th century. No, I think that completely makes sense, partially because, I mean, again, these ideas do influence these other sectors of life. I mean, ideas don't exist in isolation. Um, <coughs> how did you find that that the Arabs living in Bedad Sham, and I'm using Arabs very, I mean, Arabic speakers, but <coughs> um, for this particular instance, um, how do you find they related to the greater Arabic-speaking world, especially in the late 19th century? Yes, this is 
actually a second sort of really interesting thing that um to me that sort of you know sort of that that, that I thought about as as I was writing this so there is a really um the, the key here I think is the fact and and I just built here on a number of very smart intellectual historians who have thought about the relationship between Wataniya and Qawmiya, in other words, between single country nationalisms, for instance, Syria or Jordan, and pan, what is called in English, pan-Arab nationalism. Right? And a number of very smart historians have pointed out that these two, although um, sort of in principle and theoretically contradicting each other and being quite opposed to each other, in actual fact are not. They are rather sort of a, politically but also intellectually, they are rather like, a they are different points on a continuum. Yep. And you can see this when it comes, for instance, to the question how Qaumiyun, that is pan-Arab nationalists as it were, thought about their own position within Bilad Hashem in the greater Arab world. Right? So the interesting thing about them is that they sort of do two things at the same point in time. On the one side, they say, yes, Bilad Hashem is not really a thing unto its own. It has to be seen as part of a larger Arab world, which until the 1930s doesn't quite include Egypt or only sort of peripherally, and then by the 1930s includes Egypt as well. But on the other side, both in terms of their political action and even in terms of, in terms of their the definition of what is central most, as it were, to that Qaum, to that area of the Arab Qaum, namely of the Arab sort of, well, uh, uh, folk, as it were, is Bilat Hashem. So there we have this very interesting um, sort of coin with two sides, saying it is part of something larger on the one side, and at the one, at the very same point in time, sort of in actual fact, acting as if it still is a quite central bit that's in that sense distinct from the rest of the Arab world, or at least is a distinctly identifiable part of the Arab world as a whole. Okay, let's switch gears again and let's sort of zoom forward because we've talked about um, the Ottoman era, we've talked about um, the late Ottoman period and the coming of the nation state. Um, what about the world wars? I mean, we could talk about them independently, but it's sort of the way we often don't, what binds the two world wars to the Middle East is often thematically that we don't think about um, the Middle East when we think about World War I or World War II. Um, but one thing you do quite well in the book is illustrate how Damascus functioned during World War I, for example. Um, so do you want to talk a bit more about that? Sort of mm -hmm. what the the First World War had it as an impact, and then also what the Second World War did in comparison. Because I think at some point in the book you call it, what was it, non-catastrophic? And I think one assumes... The Second, World, the second yeah, World War. The Second World War. One assumes that that's sort of the impact that it had on both, but they're quite distinct. Yeah. Firstly, I'd like to say that both the First and the Second World War have to be seen been viewed through the lens of the socio-spatial transformation of the modern Middle East, not as episodes that are entirely extraordinary and distinct, but rather as stages of larger phases um, of um, 
of, of transnationalization. That is, to give you a good example, <clears throat> and if you take the First World War, in the First World War, um, a very central sort of member of the Ottoman triumvirate um, of 1913 uh, that sort of really came into power in 1913, a man by the name of Jamal Pasha, mm -hmm. um, for all matters and purposes becomes the ruler of Bilad Hashem. Uh, other sort of Ottomans, higher-ups, have very little direct say re what he is doing in Bilad Hashem from late 1914 to early 1918, uh, when he is the commander of all Ottoman armies, and by extension thereof, also really sort of the ruler of Bilad Hashem. And what that means specifically is that all sorts of different military-related undertakings he performs accelerate the process of regional integration that as you may remember, I earlier had said was one of a, was one of the key characteristics of the transformation, spatially speaking, of um, Bilad Hashem from the mid nineteenth century onwards. Right. So to give you one very good example, a lot of roads are built, a lot of railways are built. Some of them connect Bilad Hashem further up to what nowadays is Turkey, but most of them really help to integrate socially, economically, in terms of the infrastructure, the transport infrastructure, different bits of Bilad Hashem closer with each other. There are many other examples that one could add here that basically show that um, World War I is not so much a sort of a, a, a um, thing and period onto its own, but in some ways at least, really a continuation, an extreme acceleration of certain processes that are that existed before. Of course, in, other, in, other, in some other ways, it was sort of a distinct period. But as far as the socio-spatial sort of transformations that interest me is concerned, it is an acceleration of certain things that are around before, right? Um, in a certain sense, we can say something quite similar about the Second World War, although at that point in time, 20 years later, 1939 to 1945, um, the, the particular spatial intertwinements and spatial characteristics that we see are, of course, already quite different from the ones that we saw in the 1910s, right? But also there, the Second World War wasn't simply an entirely different beast from what had happened in the 1920s and 1930s, but rather, in a certain sense, accentuated certain processes that had already been afoot, right? Um, with certain new sort of things being thrown into the mix. Uh, to be precise, or to rather to be concrete, um, one thing that really does happen, I think, in the Second World War is the really now crystallization of both the idea and a certain economic and also political reality of something that is called and can be called now al-alam al-arabi like the Arab world, which by the way is a term that was barely used before the late 1930s and before the Second World War. But for all sorts of different reasons, some to do with actions by Arabs, others to do with actions by the British, um, not the least, the construction of a really 
truly Middle East might economic zone uh, and all sorts of different uh, sort of you know policies attendant to that um, we really have a much more solid sort of idea and practice of an Arab world at that point in time and that in turn means that whatever is distinct about Biladashan becomes a little bit less important at this point in time in the Second World War than it was before. And I think that's sort of an interesting other example of how both the functioning but also the cultural meaning of that region really changes over time and sometimes actually pretty fast. So again, I may use or exploit this opportunity to just like drive home this point again that this region, Bilad Hashem, is in no shape or form a given. It is not a black box, uh, the shape, contour, and meaning of which, the nature of which, as it were, is simply set. It really changes dramatically, uh, both in terms of its function and in terms of the meaning that people give it. Okay, so let's again go back to the end of World War II, and I guess this is more of a a question of scope. You end right after the Second World War, um, and you have this epilogue where you you actually come quite up to the present, but was there a reason that you framed your book um, in terms of, you framed your book chronologically this way? So there are two questions here, right? One is why chronological, and the second, why end in 1945 or in the late 1940s. Let me take the chronological question first. Um, It was important to me to write a book that didn't accept 1918 as a natural end point or starting point, right? So I didn't want to be an either Ottomanist or a sort of post-Ottomanist. Rather, what I wanted to show um, is why it makes sense to write a spatial, social spatial history that actually bookends these, or basically crosses that watershed. Uh, but to do so, I thought it is best to proceed chronologically. That is, to show how these different aspects of transpassionalization really unfold, it is best to choose not a thematic organization, for the book, but rather a chronological one. And certainly, and particularly in chapters 3, 4, and 5, treating the 1920s, 30s, and 1940s, I very explicitly you know, show what has remained the same and what has changed in comparison to the chapters, the respective chapters before. And that I really, I think... To do so effectively, one needs to use a chronological framework. If you do, if you choose a thematic uh, framework, you will have to time and again sort of chew over this issue of chronology in each chapter. And I think that is very tiring both for the writer and certainly for the reader, right? So that sort of uh, takes the chronology question box. Now, why stop in 1945 or the late 1940s? The real answer, the ultimate answer is time and space. That is my time and my space and the time and the space of the reader. The book as it is, is 500 pages long. Uh, To sort of go into, seriously to go into the post-independence period would have meant to 
add probably at least another 300 pages. And that just was unfeasible given practical considerations of tenure, uh, but also practical considerations of how long should and can a book be. 500 pages is, God knows, like long enough, right? Now, on the other side, uh, I felt conflicted about this choice, right? And I also very, you know, generally do believe that all sorts of different processes that I described for the mid-19th to the mid-20th century in one way or another are still really important for the post-independence period, that is, for the period from the late or mid-1940s onwards. And it is hence that I uh, decided to write this postscript, which basically is very short. I think it's maybe 15 pages long or something like that. But it basically looks at some key processes that I had described that I had described in the whatever 350 pages before, and very concisely tries to show why and how they matter or do not quite matter anymore in the same way since. But this is much more impressionistic than the real chapters that I had written before, and I think I sort of explicitly say this as well. Um, this is uh, sort of more of a sort of final essay than a sort of a, you know, heavily footnoted, empirically loaded sort of chapter of its own. Okay, so to think about the book methodologically for a second, um, this sort of, we've, we've touched upon just repeatedly, just like how multi-genre this book sort of is and the I mean you just said the book was what 600 pages you failed to mention that about 150 of those pages easily were footnotes because you just go very not only do you sort of have your methodological debates in the footnotes itself which makes the books very very clean and easy to read but you have extensive source work so can you just sort of explain to us what the practical side of this looks like what what does source scattering look like for you? What sorts of sources do you read? Are there any that would surprise us? I don't think that any would be surprising. No, I mean, I haven't reinvented the wheel or found something you know, new here. Um, what I would say is three things. The first is that I, I certainly you know, used sources in all of the four or five uh, countries that sort of, you know, centrally constitute, you know, Bilad Hashem, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, as well as, of course, European countries um, and the United States. And, you know, if I would have chosen another viewpoint onto this book, then I may have had to go to India or to, I don't know, Japan or whatever. But um, the first thing I'd say is that... Uh, I sort of gathered materially in, you know, not simply one country of that sort of area, but in all four, plus a lot of other things too. Secondly, um, I really used a range of different source material. There is, I mean, and, and most of them are quite sort of normal, but I used a range of it. So that's, in other words, printed material, such as, you know, a lot of different journals, um, as well as uh, a lot of archival sources, uh, uh, again, not only from Western archives, but from uh, sort of archives in the area as well. And quite importantly, particularly for uh, the sort of the bits on that central periphery that I talked about, that sort of 
rural area at the very core of uh, Bilad Hashem. Uh, I did uh, dozens of oral history interviews, of which I have used only maybe a dozen or ten or something like that. But they were pretty important for me because the more you get into the rural, the I feel the, the, the certainly the the less easy it gets to get to source material produced by actors themselves. And so it really becomes important to, you know, go to the actors themselves to talk to them. And I remember, I think the oldest um, person I ever talked with um, was born in 1906 or 1908. And that was really amazing to me. I mean, to interview somebody who at that point in time was, I mean, he claimed and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that was, you know, broadly correct, was 100 years old. Um, and everybody whom I interviewed was born in the 1920s or 1930s. So that was, you know, really important. Um, and then there were some um, images that they used, but not really in a sustained way, uh, but rather in one particular prelude to one chapter, I used a number of different images um, in order to sort of, you know, make my point. And the last of the three um, sort of issues I would raise here is the fact that, you know, I used not only, obviously, but this just goes without saying, I used not only, you know, like any, I mean, this is just totally normal and, you know, o obvious. I didn't use only Western sources, German, French, English, uh, but also the Middle Eastern sources, mean, mainly and uh, meaning Hebrew and uh, and Arabic. Yeah. Um, no, it would be very hard to make many of your points without Arabic sources, I feel. I feel like it would be a very... Absolutely. It would be a yeah. shell of a book told from the colonial Absolutely. perspective. And again, that's something, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, you don't, I mean, you sort of give back agency to the people living in these cities in this region by not overtly focusing on colonialism, um, which I find to be slightly refreshing. I mean, there, there might be some problems with that, but I think that that's definitely a perspective that needs to be taken, that there's a lot more movement going on the ground that sort of doesn't have to deal with any of that colonial. And again, you do that with the sources. I mean, just the number of periodicals alone that you cite. So one thing that I love just about the structure of the book um, is that you, it's structured quite uniquely. I mean, we did note that it's told in chronological order. Each chapter focuses on a different period and you periodize every, um, you periodize it very well by um, grounding that period in, um, a sense of why everything is sort of delineated within that space of a chapter. But between these chapters, you have these little stories, these mini chapters, so to speak. And they're very, they're micro histories, which might seem counterintuitive to the writing of a book like this, which is a regional, transnational, um, even to some extent, a global history that's trying to put forward this, this, this um, methodological point about transpatialization. So what was the inspiration behind it? All these little micro histories. Um, what well, I think I mean in a sense, your question contains its own answer. The problem, um, I had with writing a book that covers a good hundred years, and that really tries to sort of make a <clears throat> using it tries to use you know a lot of empirical material to, however, really put forward a sort of a a, a sort of a you know very clearly formulated conceptual argument you know in a sense this book is a is a vehicle for a conceptual argument rather than a story simply but the problem is this is that um uh you 
sort of have to be quite ultimately as as much uh, even if you try to give a lot of detail you do have to be um sort of quite um how should i put this uh general in the sense that you can't go into every single last detail that you would want to and that i felt ultimately for the reader may pose a problem i felt that as much as i tried to infuse uh, or to put life into these chapters to use real people to tell my story it still wasn't quite enough and it was for that reason that i decided to uh, use a sort of a general approach uh, you know that that has been uh, you know used by by others particularly people who sort of have written um, not biographies, but as you sort of pointed out, sort of micro-histories of people. And so what, what I basically decided to do is to uh, put what I call a prelude in front of each chapter. And that prelude works like, um, basically like a historical um, message, a historical uh, sort of epistle. Uh, it turns around one particular person uh, and what I, the story I tell, however, about this person is not just like a general biographical story. And of course, biography and microhistory are two very, very different genres. Rather, it is it sort of in a nutshell presents those aspects of the story of that person that I think is illustrative of at least some key aspects of the chapter to follow, right? Um to give you a good example, Prelude 1 uh, deals with Khalil Sakakini, uh, a very well-known, uh, you can call him Palestinian intellectual and educator. But it basically doesn't just talk about him. What it does is to um, focus on a number of different diary entries he uh, composed when living for a year in the United States in 19. I think 07, 1908, maybe it was 1908, 1909. I don't quite recall anymore right now. But at any rate, he writes diary entries and part of those diary entries are his dreams. And his dreams very often take him back to Jerusalem. And they do so in a manner, I felt, that was quite indicative when read together with other material he produced. They're quite indicative of the points that I wanted to put forward in the following first chapter, right? So I basically used the story or particular aspects of the story of Sakakini in 10 pages in order to prepare the reader for what will come next, in order to give him a certain taste of the larger, broader chapter to um, what I actually really appreciate about that specific example is that Sekagini is another recurring figure in this story, and you sort of check back in with him later uh, to make another completely different point about cities. Um, so again, I mean, just all these little stories just really bring these points to life. And again, remind you that it's not simply about cities that are actors, but it's individuals who make these cities and move them, yeah. so to speak, transpatially. Um, so before I let you go, I wanted to ask, what, is, what are you currently working on? I know that you just had a piece come out, I think, on Mike, Mike.com about um, switch cities. So again, you're continuing with this theme of cities. And I wanted to sort of ask about how that frames your current interests. Um, that is 
one thing I'm thinking of continuing to work on, um, but I'm not sure yet. It is basically, it really grew out of um, this book here. Uh, I started to sort of think about Beirut and Beirut's functioning after Second World War, then started to think that there must be other cities uh, that sort of function quite similarly. Um, at that point in time, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and sort of think that Dakar and Singapore are two such cities in the world that did. Um, I don't quite want to get into the details here. Um, but that was something that is something that still interests me. But um, right now, there's sort of uh, two other larger things that I'm actually more focusing on. One is um, a book that takes a seminar that I taught a few times at Princeton, and now I'm teaching again in Geneva, which is called Fundamental Historical Questions. I hear you laugh. Um, uh, takes that um, uh, course and uh, a lot of the different you know, thoughts uh, that sort of came out of that course um, in interactions with a lot of very bright students um, and tries to basically turn four, maybe five, but I think it's four key fundamental historical questions into distinct chapters. I want to write a very short book, maybe 100, maybe 150 pages, uh, and sort of do that. So we would, you know, one chapter, let's, one chapter will be on causation, causality. Uh, uh, another chapter will be on space and scale. A third chapter will be on uh, time and periodization. And the fourth chapter uh, probably will ter turn around structure versus and event. Um, so it's not a sort of a philosophy of history. Uh, it's not a cars uh, what's history. Um, uh, rather, it is interested in thinking uh, about key, maybe we could call them questions, perhaps we should call them sort of parameters that each and every historian needs to take into account explicitly or at the very least implicitly when writing, right? And sort of think about them. Um, that's one thing. And the second thing uh, actually is a sort of a mix between transnational European and imperial history. It is the story of um, the rise, fall, and rise again and fall again of what is called the Institut Colonial International, the International Colonial Institute, which was founded in Brussels in the 1890s, uh, developed quite a lot of activity, then sort of uh, you know, started to you know retract a bit, and then became very important again in all sorts of different ways from the mid nineteen twenties onwards for about the decade, the mid maybe late nineteen thirties. And what's interesting about this institute is the fact that it brought together a number of different bigger, but very importantly also smaller empires in Europe administrators connected to those empires who from the mid-1920s onwards, and it's sort of the interwar period that interests me most, they're very concerned about the future of their empires because of the Germans, because 
of the communists and because of the League of Nations, which they all thought was a very big sort of problem that was would just become a larger problem as time went by. And one could actually call um, the work of sort of that institute, or at least one way of looking at the work of this institute, is to call it anti-Geneva, that is, anti-League of Nations. And they actually, on, in, some, on, in certain cases, people associated with the institute thought about themselves as doing that. So it would be, or it will be, also, again, a very short history, I hope. I can't write 500-page books anymore. Um, it will be a sort of a history that brings together a, let's say, transnational um, sort of perspective while looking at Europe or particular um, dimension of the formation of modern Europe and do so through the question of how pro-empire actors tried to save they're each and everyone's empire by coordinating and cooperating much more than they had before, right? It's not that the French and the British and the Belgians and the Portuguese, etc., etc., never talked to each other before the 1920s. I mean, we know this empirically that there were interactions before, but it appears that for some, those interactions became more inevitable and perhaps more central to the survival of their empires from the mid-1920s onward, certainly for the smaller imperial actors like Portugal or Belgium. So these are sort of the two big sort of book projects that will probably occupy me for the next four to five years. Uh, My only takeaway from the last book was, oh, so not the Middle East. You're sort of moving Um, far away from that. I'm making your mother proud by going back slightly to the Switzerland. Yes, yes, to Switzerland. (laughs) Um, uh, not the Middle East in uh, these two projects but there are you know smaller things certainly Um, uh, I have one of the last things that I did in Princeton was uh, to partly myself copy and partly have somebody copy I think about 150 books in Arabic about decolonization written in the from the 40s to the 60s and I'm slowly going through them just like reading through them now and uh, I don't have any argument yet, but I'm just curious to see really how people wrote about Africa and Asia from the perspective of different Arabic countries, mainly Cairo. So this is something I will want to do, but I, I don't quite have a take on it yet. I'm just immersed in the material, which is a lot of fun, actually, too. Yeah, not so thick with the goal. And then my other comment was on the fundamental historical questions thing. Probably to clarify why I laughed was I was in an intermediary version of that class. And yeah, you think very, I mean, as you can tell from sort of this interview from the book, um, The Making of the Modern Middle East, um, no, the book is titled, the book, um, The Middle East and the Making of the Modern World, sorry. Um, You think very conceptually. And I think that that sort of book with these, you know, things like causation and scope and and temporal um, scope, geographic scope, these things help us as historians sharpen our language, but I also think that they're very, I mean, this is the way history should be taught sort of at the high school level is sort of how to think about time and space 
um, within these different categories. How do things cause one another? Can you really say that something caused another thing? Or um, can you really argue that there are these structures or institutions in space? Like, what does that actually mean? And I think that that's really important for critical thinking. So I, I hope it's a, an accessible book. I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, we'll see. Thank you for doing this interview with me. Um, and congratulations on the new book. It's, it's, it's truly a joy to read. Thank you very much, Nadira, for um, having interviewed me. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.